5. Only with the hope that he would find rich deposits of gold for them in some strange land. Both missions failed, but God was directing the life of Columbus. He put into his heart the firm belief that the world is round, and made him anxious to prove his theory to be true. Finally, down through years of hardship and discouragement, God brought Columbus to the age of maturity and wisdom, fully equipped for the great task which was before him. Then the Spanish monarchs provided the required vessels for the voyage. Here we have one of these quaint caravels, the Santa Maria, draw figure 50 complete, or, on account of the detail, prepare it in advance. There were two other ships, the Pinta and the Nina. What curious looking boats they were. They left the coast of Spain on Friday, August 3, 1492. Where were they going? Nobody knew. But there was one man in that company who, deep in his heart, believed that God was directing the course of those three little caravels across the vast ocean. Washington Irving, in his Life of Columbus, says, He was a devoutly pious man. Religion mingled with the whole course of his thoughts and shone forth in his most private and in studied writings, whenever he made a great discovery, he celebrated it by solemn thanks to God, the voice of prayer and melody of praise rose from his ships when they first beheld the new world, and his first action on landing was to prostrate himself on the earth and offer thanksgiving, such a man was Christopher Columbus a man of faith and prayer, he had prayed that God would direct him in the discovery of a new route to India, God answered that prayer in a richer, greater measure than Columbus ever knew, for to him whose life had been one of devotion and communion with God, was given a name above all other names written in the world's list of navigators and discoverers, he prayed for a great blessing, God gave him a greater one, as the Santa Maria entered the harbor of the little island of San Salvador and the crews of the three vessels, numbering 120 in all, knelt and thanked God for his great mercies, Columbus believed he had reached a distant coast of India, Draw the ground and trees, figure 51, but, in truth, it was infinitely more than that he had found a new world, at, a new world, completing figure 51, such was the blessing which God gave to Christopher Columbus, such is the blessing he will give to all who trust him and love him, always does the true Christian receive more than that for which he asks, for the human mind cannot know the thoughts of God or of his love for those who give their lives wholly into his keeping. The thief of character meditation conscience the unholy thought robs life of its choicest treasures the voice of conscience. The lesson that as we use care in the selection of our confidential friends, so, also, should we guard the choice of our thoughts. It was Lowell who said, God, let us hope that to our praise good God not only reckons the moments when we tread his ways, but when the spirit beckons that some slight good is also wrought beyond self-satisfaction, when we are simply good in thought. How sir we fail in action? The truth that good thoughts must be encouraged every moment of our lives, if we would really live, is expressed by every great mind that the earth has known. It is here reviewed once more. The talk. I am going to place on the drawing paper today the picture of a young man of the type which we admire a young fellow of upright life. Good habits and Christian principles. We want him for our friend. Draw figure 52. Complete but there is another type of man whose character we can well illustrate by changing the lines in this first portrait. With the broad side of your black crayon make the changes needed to produce figure 53. Shade the face with a light touch of the broad side of the crayon. He is a dishonest man he is willing to risk his life in taking from us that which does not belong to him. Do we welcome such a man to our homes? No. The hand of every man is against a thief and a robber. He is an outcast. 
the law seeks to protect us from him by putting him in prison if he can be caught. I know that we agree that we should be very careful about the kind of people whom we welcome to our homes, but, nevertheless the hand of forgiveness and uplift should be extended to every repentant sinner, for Christ has so taught us. But if we should be so careful about the people whom we admit into our homes, why should we not be still more careful about those other visitors our thoughts when we admit them to our minds? Did you ever think of your thoughts as your visitors? No, I suppose not, but we are going to consider them as visitors today. Ah, here comes a nice-looking thought that wants to enter into your head. Fortunately, you have a faithful servant who answers the doorbell every time a visitor comes. It is your conscience, and if it is well-trained, it will admit to your mind only the pure thoughts, and it will slam the door in the face of all harmful intruders. But, alas! We are the master of the house and sometimes when conscience would close the door to an unholy thought, we tell the servant to step aside, and we admit the visitor. It is a shame, and the worst of it is that conscience, like an obedient servant, finally lets us have our own way and then we have thrust out our best friend. Here is a boy who has lagged behind in his schoolwork. A nice-looking little thought comes along and says, Why not cheat just a little? No one would know anything about it. In a jiffy. Conscience is on hand trying to shut the door, but the boy welcomes the thought into his head. Conscience, made bold by the threatened disaster, tries to show the lad that he can succeed more surely by remaining true and honest, but the thought prevails, and before the boy knows it, the door is open to a multitude of other thoughts, and the ones which came last are worse than the little one which entered first. When such a boy is grown to a young manhood he finds himself robbed of character, robbed of honors. Robbed of noble ambitions, he is a failure, no one trusts him for he cannot trust himself, he is completely at the mercy of his evil thoughts, and conscience can no longer serve him, how gladly, then, should each one of you boys and girls welcome good thoughts, make conscience your doorkeeper, the same good thought will come again and again, bringing other splendid, helpful, delightful thoughts, and they will become the greater part of your life, every one of you has a thinker in his head, be careful to keep it clean and pure. Jenny C.A.S.S.E.D.A. Children's Day Service A Children's Day Story of What One Girl Did to Make Others Happy The Lesson That One Little Act May Multiply to Bless Countless Thousands The Story of Jenny Kissaday is one of the sweetest narratives of humble service that can be told to children and their elders. It is a chapter from real life which may be copied in varied form by each one of us. Its use is suggested for Children's Day, but it is good for many other occasions. The Talk This morning, while we are surrounded by these beautiful flowers, and while our hearts are light as we think of all the beauty and brightness that God has given us, I want to tell you the story of Jenny Kissadee and what she did to bring beauty and gladness into the world. You may think that Jenny couldn't do very much, because she was a poor little crippled girl. She lived at Louisville, Kentucky. When she was small, she was just as lively and happy as any other little girl but one day she suffered from a terrible accident and from that time she was helpless. I am going to draw a picture of Jenny's crutch to represent her suffering and her helplessness. Draw crutch with brown. Figure 54. Have I said she was helpless? Well, this is what I mean, she could not help herself, but she could help others, and this is how she did it, for several dark, painful years Jenny Kissaday suffered and waked wait for something which she could do to enable her to send some ray of light out into the world which would brighten other hearts. One day she read in the New York Observer how a young girl school teacher, 
who lived in the outskirts of the city of Boston and was employed in one of the downtown schools, was bringing brightness into the homes of many poor people by taking with her large baskets of beautiful roses and lilacs and snowballs and many other kinds of flowers from her suburban home and giving them to the children whom she met. It was a simple little act, but the reading of it by Jenny Cassidy brought a transformation in her life. I wish I knew the name of this young school teacher in Boston, but I can't give it to you. But it was she who gave to Jenny Cassidy the thought for which she had longed. Jenny's suffering was almost forgotten in her planning and determination to raise flowers and give them to the sick and the needy in Louisville. Her friends soon learned of her plans and there were many willing hearts and hands to help her. Under her guidance the Louisville Flower Mission was established, and it soon proved to be a great and growing blessing. It had been doing its beautiful work for four years when Miss Frances E. Willard, head of the Women's Christian Temperance Union, visited Louisville. There she heard of the mission and the noble young woman who founded it. Miss Willard visited Jenny Cassidy in her sick room, and when the conference had closed, Jenny had been placed at the head of the Flower Mission Department of the Women's Christian Temperance Union which was at that time brought into existence. This was in 1882, and Jenny continued in this great work until the time of her death in 1893. June 9th is observed as the red-letter day of the Flower Mission Department of the Women's Christian Temperance Union, for this is the birthday of Jenny Cassidy. Every year, thousands of bouquets of beautiful flowers find their way into homes of the sick and the poor throughout the land, and so... With the forgetting of the sufferings of Jenny Cassidy and the remembrance of her beautiful life, I think we may well change this crutch to something more commemorative of her life. With green chalk, change the crutch to a stem of a carnation, and with pink draw the blossom. Figure 55. In Louisville, the people have sought to honor the memory of this young woman by the establishment of the Jenny Cassidy Infirmary and the Rest Cottage Home for Working Girls. The school children of Louisville erected a beautiful monument to her memory bearing an appropriate inscription. Some of us who had our health and strength may well wonder if we are fulfilling all of God's demands. Boys and girls, let me impress upon you the thought that it is not the great, showy thing that makes people love us, but the careful doing of the seemingly little things, which, when summed up, make a magnificent whole. Jenny Cassidy did what she could. No more is required of us, but that much is certainly expected and we will fall short if we fail to meet the expectation. A beautiful close to this talk would be the recitation or reading of Dr. Van Dyke's poem, Transformation, which may be found in The Blue Flower, or in The Builders and Other Poems. Mother Mother's Day Home Training the great men of the world pay her the highest of tribute a carnation day thought. The lesson that the welfare of the church and of the home rests more with the mothers than with the Sunday school teacher. It is interesting to read the recorded words of some of the world's greatest minds in tribute to motherhood. The following talk, quoting some of these, should be an impressive lesson to the young and to the mothers as well. The talk, who are these mothers for whom we have decorated our schoolroom and ourselves with these beautiful flowers? Draw, in black outline the carnation blossom, add the stem in solid green, and place the lettering in purple, red or blue. Figure 56. Surely these mothers must be of great importance or we would not be having a special service for them today. I have been reading a little about mothers, to see if they are really of much value to the world, and I want to repeat some of the things I have read. It is well to have all of these quotations in note form to be read with accuracy. I find that John Randolph, one of America's greatest statesmen, said, 
I should have been an atheist if it had not been for one recollection and that was the memory of the time when my departed mother used to take my little hand in hers and cause me on my knees to say, Our Father who art in heaven. I find that Abraham Lincoln said of his mother, All that I am and all that I hope to be I owe to my mother. Blessings on her memory. I find that George Herbert said, One good mother is worth a hundred schoolmasters. I find that Oliver Wendell Holmes said, Youth fades, love droops, the leaves of friendship fall, a mother's secret hope outlives them all. I find that Coleridge said, A mother is a mother still, the holiest thing alive. I find that Beecher said, A mother's heart is the child's schoolroom. I find that Benjamin West, the great artist, said, A kiss from my mother made me a painter. I find that General Wallace, in Ben-Hur, said, God could not be everywhere, so he made mothers. I find everywhere the great men of the world paying loving tribute to these mothers, and after all there is only one real perfect, true and faultless mother in all the world and that is our own mother, whether she be gone before or whether she be still with us. I am sure that every one of us older ones will find ourselves in tune with the expressive words of George Griffith Fetter, who wrote, The noblest thoughts my soul can claim, the holiest words my tongue can frame, and worthy are to praise the name more sacred than all other. An infant, when her love first came a man, I find it just the same, reverently, I breathe her name, the blessed name of mother, and so, I answer the question that I asked at the beginning, who are these mothers, really, it seems to me that the mothers of the world are the power which keeps it moving toward all that is good and high and holy, mother love has been a power in the world since history commenced, and the scriptures are filled with beautiful demonstrations of it. How we love to read the story of the mother of Moses who hid her child in the bulrushes and then succeeded in being engaged as his nurse. How often has the heart thrilled at the hearing of the story of Samuel and his mother. How strongly the mother love manifested itself at the time of the judgment of Solomon who was called to determine the possession of the child claimed by two women. And what could be more beautiful than the pictures of the devotion of the mother of Jesus to him who was to be the savior of the world. Verily. The hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that rules the world, through the love of good which the mother hopes for her child. The mother of today in America has a greater problem than ever before. The boys of today are the men of tomorrow. The boys will be what the mothers make them, and with this thought, I want to change our drawing slightly to indicate the ever-present problem which is never safe except in the hands of the right kind of mothers of the boys of today and of the future generations. Add the words to complete figure 57. May God bless you mothers, and help you to help these boys and these girls to meet the great problems which are before them, you must help them, without you, they are on unsafe ground, treading perilous paths, New Year's resolutions New Year's Day watchfulness most of them may be rolled into a one, hold fast to that which is good, the lesson that the positive life, rather than the negative life, knows true happiness, while this talk is planned for the special application to the opening of the fiscal or the school or church year, It may be revised very easily to fit many other occasions. The talk. Right now. At the beginning of the new year. We hear a great deal about making resolutions. Turning over a new leaf. And so on. In many cases. These things are spoken of lightly and laughingly. And yet. I know that many of us. Away down deep in our hearts. Are thinking of things which we are resolving to do during the new year. And also of things which we have made up our minds not to do during the coming 12 months. What does it signify when we do this? It means that we have made mistakes and that we do not intend to make the same mistakes again. It is a strange thing to say, but it is true. Nevertheless, 
that a man is a good deal like a fish in some respects. Whenever you go fishing, you use just the kind of bait which you think will fool the fish the most easily. You should know where a certain kind of fish is likely to abound and then use the style of bait which that kind of fish is most apt to mistake for something which it is not. Here, for instance, is a cork bobber on the surface of the water of a lake, with the line attached to it. And here, below, is the hook, nicely concealed from view by the bait in the form of an angle worm. Draw the lines to follow the talk. Completing figure 58. It is evident that the fisherman who holds the line is not after the kind of fish which are to be captured by trolling or casting, for he is using the method known as still fishing, and, sure enough, he has attracted a victim, a bluegill, which is making straight for what he thinks will mean more life to him but which probably means sure death unless he succeeds in getting away again. Drawfish. Completing figure 59. So. The ingenuity of man is kept active in devising means of capturing game of all kinds. And are we not like the fish? Haven't you bitten into any baited hooks during the past year? Haven't you been fooled into thinking something was good for you when it turned out to be bad? Hasn't some alluring amusement or pastime brought disappointment or shame when you thought it would bring delight and satisfaction? Ah, yes. All of us have been fooled in one way or another. And when we come to this time of the year and decide to start anew we find that it isn't so easy as we thought. To get rid of many errors or vices which we would eliminate from our lives. Perhaps some have fallen victims to habits which grip us relentlessly. And if so we can doubtless agree with Pope that vice is a monster of so frightful mean as to be hated needs but to be seen, yet seen too oft. Familiar with her face. We first endure, then pity, then embrace. As Shakespeare says. There is no vice so simple, but assumes some mark of virtue on his outward parts. There's where the trouble starts. We're completely fooled, and when we come to purify our lives by eliminating this thing and that, we are discouraged with the result, and in many instances we give up in despair. How, then, are we to make our resolutions good? How are we to be sure that the new leaf which we turn over will not be blown back again by the first wind of passion or discouragement which comes? I believe we can do it by making our resolutions positive and not negative. Let me explain what I mean. We are normal human beings. We demand activity. There must be something doing. If we are giving our time wastefully to society, to the theater, to the many other forms of amusement we shall find ourselves most miserable if we simply resolve to eliminate these things from our lives. To do this is to make a negative resolution. Remember the thing to do is to resolve that hereafter our time will be spent in busying ourselves at those things which are wholesome, helpful to others, and of such a character to bring delight to us because of the service we can render to the world. What can you do? Why? The field to do good is never overcrowded. The church and the Sunday school offer many avenues of activity. Find out the thing you can do best and cover your talent. Get busy at good works and then there will be no room for the objectionable things and they will die out because good habits are growing in their stead. To do this is the surest way to set your mind on the things that are above, not on things that are upon the earth. And when this is done we need have little concern about our happiness. The mountain climber light danger all light, shining in the darkness, is either a guide or a warning. The lesson that the Bible sends out two kinds of light, guiding and warning, and that all who neglect it are groping in the dark. Loving darkness rather than light, because their deeds are evil. The word light, appears very frequently in the scriptures as a type of the highest human good. All of the most joyous emotions of the mental and physical natures of man are described in the imagery of light. 
Throughout the book it is used to typify the true religion and happiness. The talk. When we go riding in an automobile after dark, we light the lamps at the front and at the rear. Why do we light the lamps? So the light will shine on the roadway and we will be able to see where we are going and thus avoid mishap and injury? Yes. But how about the lamp at the rear? Oh. We light that one so other people will not run into us. Yes. And that, too, is one of the great reasons why we light the front lamps. If we were to start out on a night journey with no lamps burning, there would be great danger of accident. And especially if we were to meet another automobile which had no lights burning, we would be apt to bump into each other. The law recognizes all this and compels us to keep our automobile lights brilliantly shining. Dwight L. Moody, the great evangelist, tells the story that as he was walking along a dark city street one night, he met a man, who carried an object in each of his hands. Something about the man's actions excited the curiosity of Mr. Moody, and he stopped to speak to him. The thing that caused Mr. Moody to wonder was this, the man held in one hand a lighted lantern, and in the other a cane with which he was feeling his way along the street. As he stopped, Mr. Moody saw that the man was blind. He was so much interested that he spoke to the man, saying, Since you are blind, why do you carry a lantern? It doesn't help you to see your way. Mumber replied the man, I carry it to keep people from running into me. So, here, you see, was an instance of carrying a light, not to enable one to see his way but to guard himself against harm from those who would be warned thereby. Oft times, you have seen red lanterns placed along streets where dangerous obstructions are left in the pathway of travel. These lights are to warn people of possible harm. As Christians, we, too, must have a light on our pathway to guide us through life, and the same light will also guard us against harm. That light comes from Jesus Christ through his word. With the light of his love within us we can never mistake the way. If we had that light, temptations may come to us, but they cannot harm us because that light warns them away. This light is our guide and our guard. God's word, the psalmist declares, is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The story is told of a traveler in the West who, separated from the other members of his party, was climbing slowly up the rocky side of a rugged mountain. Draw the man and the lines of the mountain. His progress was slow, not only because of the difficulty in climbing up the slippery and treacherous rocks, but because the mountain top was shrouded in a heavy mist or cloud, which made it impossible for him to see more than a few feet ahead of him. Draw the cloud line to complete figure 60. All at once, the bright sunlight broke through the mist, and the man was horrified to find that he was on the very brink of a high precipice and that a climb of a few more feet would have meant death and destruction to him draw lines to complete figure 61. Everywhere in life does our pathway lead toward danger. The saloon would claim the young man. The light says, whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. Perhaps the temptation comes to be dishonest in dealing with other people. The light says, all things therefore whatsoever ye would that men should do unto you, even so do ye also unto them. Whatever the temptation, whatever the perplexity, however deep the darkness, this light is ours not only to brighten the way but to warn the evil thing to depart from us. And, having received this light, let us remember continually that Christ said, Ye are the light of the world, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. The open saloon door temperance day destruction the young man who enters therein endangers his whole afterlife. The lesson that both the soul and the body are threatened with destruction by indulgence in strong drink. 
This temperance lesson possesses one of the surprise features which are permissible only when they lose themselves in the greatness of the truth they present. In preparing for the talk, be sure that your guidelines are properly placed. You must be provided with a sharp penknife to use in cutting the doors in the picture. The dotted lines for enlarging the picture are omitted for fear of confusion, but these may be drawn over figure 62, with a hard pencil, and the desired purpose be accomplished. The talk, to us who realize the terrible results of the use of strong drink, and who are trying to do our part in protecting the boys and young men from the blighting influence of the saloon, there is something most discordant in the way in which these places parade their false attractiveness, for many there are who do not realize that they are a trap which, to enter, may prove fatal to a life and hope. The great question island why can they not see the danger? That is the mystery. For down through the ages has come the thunder of warning against this great enemy of mankind. Look not thou upon the wine when it is red, cries out King Solomon, that the last it biteth like a serpent and stingeth like an adder, who hath woe, who hath sorrow, who hath wounds without cause, who hath redness of ice, they that tarry long at the wine. One look at the saloon door should cause the young man to recoil in horror, for he may see there, if he but heed, the very warning of death. Let him look upon it. Let us see what he may behold. Draw the outline of the windows, the sign and the lower horizontal line of figure 62. Omitting, for the present, the lettering, this, let us suppose, is the front of the saloon which invites him to enter its doors. Draw very lightly the lines indicated by the dotted lines A prominently displayed are the evidences that intoxicating liquors are sold there. Draw with red chalk the words, dealers in wine, porter, whiskies, bourbon, etc., completing figure 62. There is no more drawing to do, the remaining step is taken by the aid of the penknife. Here we have the front of the saloon. There is one thing about the drink habit that we can easily understand. And there is one thing about it that I suppose we shall never understand. We can realize why the man who is bound by this awful curse does not break his bonds. How willingly would he do it if he believed he could. But, as we have observed, it is a mystery why a boy or a young man, with numberless powerful and convincing proofs before him, will deliberately enter the doorway of a saloon. But once within, all may seem bright and happy and joyous. Perhaps the victim is led to believe that father and mother are misinformed since there seems to be nothing but gaiety there, but he finds, all too soon, that the liquor which seemed at first to make little difference in his life, is becoming his master, and never does he realize it so well as when he tries to free himself, why and how has the saloon changed his life, the story is a simple one, and he should have seen the reason before he entered, because there is island written plainly upon the outside of the place which has meant his ruin, with your penknife cut the paper along the lines a, do not cut on the lines befold back the two doors, that be as if they were hinged. It may be necessary to hold them back with thumb tacks or pins. To heighten the effect it is well to have placed a blackened sheet of paper beneath the top sheet, so as to produce the effect illustrated. Add, and poison kills. This completes figure 63. The saloon may try to hide its real self, but every time it opens its doors to allow one of its victims to come out, it proclaims to the world that it traffics in poison poison fatal to happiness, fatal to hope, fatal to health, fatal to all the higher and nobler aspirations of life. Everywhere is this truth proclaimed. From the insane asylums come the testimony. The jails cry out that it is true. The poor houses tell of its blight. Poverty burdened homes and broken hearts everywhere proclaim the awful truth. And yet, 
the land is cursed with these dram shops whose owners care only for the money which comes to them and which should go to the advancement of the happiness and the uplift of him who is their victim. Boys, may we plead with you today never to allow this thing to enter your life to keep you from being all that God wants you to be. The simple life paced quietness the true Christian life is the safe, sensible, simple life. The lesson that speed and greed must of necessity end in dire disaster. It is a splendid thing to teach the boys and girls the lesson that true happiness attends the quiet, yet active life. While the race after vain things brings only bitterness and disappointment, the talk, because of the details in the drawing of the boat, it is advisable, we think, to complete figure 64 before beginning the talk. In these days the very air seems filled with the speed germ. Automobiles was here and there, and many a hen which now tries to cross the country road never gets more than halfway. We who live in town have to keep a sharp lookout or we are apt to share the fate of many a valuable buff coaching or Plymouth Rock. Trains speed along their glistening rails faster than ever before. Great ships skim across the ocean in days instead of weeks. The aeroplane, which needs neither steel rails nor water to glide upon, darts through space still more rapidly. Everybody seems to be in a hurry, whether he is or not. We are impatient if the streetcar is half a minute late when we are fully aware that we have plenty of time to reach our destination. Again, we fret and work because we aren't getting rich fast enough. We get mad at our neighbor because he, 